and welcome to Cinema Spectator, a show where an expert and a casual movie fan watch movies in the cinematic canon. Today's films. Well, we we'll, we watched a lot of short films today, didn't we, Isaac? Too many. Um, we will go over a list of them in case you want to um, follow along, which I think is actually the, the probably the best way to do this is to maybe watch the film. There's no film over 30 minutes uh, in this, in, in this episode. So I think it's pretty, you know, if you, they're all on YouTube, so go and watch them on YouTube, um, you know, find them and, uh, and then listen to what we have to say. But, um, if you don't want to do that and that sounds boring, um, I guess that's fine, but you'll, you'll just be, you you will not understand what we're talking about. So, um, yeah, uh, let me, my let name me, is Cameron be- Tuttle and I'm joined with <laughs> Isaac Ransom. Isaac, how are you doing? I'm good. I just want to, I just want to preface and say, this is going to be a very special episode, very different. You know, if you're a yeah. fan of our old podcast, Cameron is bringing the heat as the teacher this episode. Um, I'm bringing the heat. Yeah. We're, we're covering a pretty large and vast topic today. It is, I mean, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you said a brief Film history 101 around silent movies. Um, Some of these movies are just ancient. So here's what I'm going to do because I'm the casual, right? I literally am so out of my wheelhouse watching these (laughs) watching these films with you, Cameron, uh, or not with you, but what you know, you assign them to me. I was like, I literally have no words. I don't. I have (laughs) no idea what I'm supposed to say for this, right? And so do not feel afraid if you if if you know you've never seen anything like this. I have taken notes for you as a as someone who has not seen these movies because who has right? I have taken notes to try to describe what's happening in these movies, and Cameron's going to tell us why we watch them. So it's a little bit of a different episode. Usually we review one film, but there's going to be a deeper thesis. Cameron, I just wanted to maybe fill out some concerns for the audience. How are you doing? Um, I'm doing well. I am, I've got a lot of things going on right now. Um, but you know, it's funny. We, the, uh, the other night we were hanging out and playing video games together, not really together. We were just chatting, but, um, yeah. it was fun. We were just relaxing and that felt nice. Um, but yeah, I've got a lot of things going on right now. Um, and you know, juggling some, some different stuff. And I know you have a lot of the things going on. I think that's what we said last time, but, um, you know, whatever. It's that, uh, the start of the year takeoff, right? There's a lot of changes, a lot of big things happening. As I mentioned last week, I'm in the process of moving, which I've never done in my life. And it is, it is throwing me for a loop. Um, but the good news is that I'm moving out with my brother, which was going to be very fun. Um, we actually, just before I started recording, we went to see the place together. Um, the landlord's super cool. The, it's like just kind of a godsend of a location. Very, very, like a cottage behind someone's house. So very, very, um, very blessed to have an opportunity to find a place like this. And, um, I'm happy cause Glenn was, he loved it, which I was really scared that he was not going to like it. Um, so I'm excited for you to see it, Cameron. We'll definitely do some recording there. And yeah, thank sure. God there is some fiber internet. I was like, I was worried for the show. You know, it's not going to be like, I mean, this is, I've only recorded a few times in my actual bedroom, like at my, at, at the current house I'm living at. And it has the worst internet. So, um, you know, we're doing okay though. You know, thank goodness for Riverside, but 
yeah, yeah. season season of change very um very all over the place Cameron have you had time to watch anything in, amongst the chaos N- uh no not really um Jesus is trying to drag me to the movies to go see don't look up and I I I've I refused to engage so far um because I really find the idea of that movie boring um and I don't want to watch it so you know uh, I didn't meant I didn't mention it but I did watch that movie um, what did you think it is very um just like a very sad film it's not very like I mean, I saw some people have some hot takes on it just personally, right? It definitely leans into sort of a political mindset, but you know, I don't really mind if people share like political views, but it's what I didn't like is how it's ending message was so like depressing. It was like very, it was almost too on the nose and it was like, kind of like, I, I don't know I don't know what the right word is for it, but I think the way it pivots at the end is very strange because it it has a statement that like you know we're failing as a as a human race and I'm like okay that's kind of interesting um, and I'm not going to spoil the ending, but what it chooses to say in its final moments feels like kind almost. I don't know if rude is the right way of putting it, but like it has such heavy um, subject matter and it's, it seems to actually really want to say something. It's ending is just, it's actually like a Marvel movie comedy scene. And it's very, it's very disturbing. Like in, in my opinion, it's like, what? Like, I thought you guys were trying to say something. Like I, I thought, you know, there were aspects of the movie that were like kind of touching, you know, but, um, I just found some of the tonal bits a little a little odd. So I, I I will say though the reason I did not claim to have watched this movie is because I watched it during like a New Year's party, so it was like oh, yeah, okay. it was very in the background. So I I was it, fully yeah. aware at the end of the movie, uh, whereas maybe aspects of that tone were shared earlier on, and I just missed that because it was kind of like a background thing. But who knows? I I. I'm not sure what you would think of it, Cameron. Um, but it has a pretty big cast, you know. It's very yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I just I uh, Jesus is trying to make me see it because he thinks uh, it'll be interesting. But yeah, I ju- it's just not a movie that I was interested in. And you know, I liked um, I liked The Big Short a lot when it came out, which is another McKay movie. But I hated Vice. Um, and yeah, so I, I I don't know. I just feel like. Um, I, I feel like I can sense the idea of this movie as being mean spirited and I, I personally don't really want to engage with that. I, I find, I find that to be the least, um, least interesting part of Hollywood in a lot of ways and the least, um, like just my favorite, my least favorite part of modern movie making is a lot of the mean spiritedness, um, to it. So um, yeah, but anyways, I'm sure I'll go see it eventually, but, uh, yeah, uh, I, I have not, I have not seen anything. Um, yeah, been, been really, but not, not, uh, actually I've, I mean, I've seen all of these eight movies that we're going to talk about today, but other than that, um, you know, I always, I always come into the show, Cameron thinking like, I, I never t- 
record what I watch during the week, but there's most definitely something that I watch and I, it's just, it's blank to me. So if I, if I just cannot, you know, it'll spring upon me halfway through or maybe mm. two episodes later, I'll be like, oh yeah, I watched this movie. Actually, recently. lie, I did start rewatching um, Better Call Saul oh. with Kiana um, because she had never seen it. And I, it took me a long, long time to convince her to watch it, to convince her that it's good. Um, and we started it and we literally blazed through the first season and Dang. she, she loved it. So, uh, but that's, that's all. I watched a new Mandalorian episode and that was horrendous. So, uh, I <laughs> you guess mean book of Boba Fett or whatever it's called. Yeah. yeah. The, it is. Yeah. Episode three infamous. I, I haven't watched the fourth one, so that tells you how I feel about it. <laughs> mm. Um, and then been watching a little bit of like this old show that I watched when I was in middle school called psych. It, it's weird how there was like this age of, TV that was just super focused on being like lighthearted murder mystery stuff. Um, yeah. Like I'm, my parents love the show monk. I think it's a great show. Uh, I've watched all of those seasons, but watching psych very goofy. Um, there's it, it's, it's like, it's not very deep at all, but I'm surprised how much I'm enjoying it watching through mm. it again on Amazon. Um, yeah, that's that's about all I can think of. This is again Cinema Spectator. You can support us at patreon.com slash ECFS Productions. Throw a couple dollars our way, get an exclusive episode each month. Have your questions read on air and a bunch of other good benefits. You can check it out there. If you don't have a few dollars, it's all good. Give us a rating. That helps a lot. Tell friends and family. All that stuff helps the show grow. Cameron, I want a hot take, and then we're gonna get into the dense subject matter of this episode. <laughs> We've been doing silent movies, Cameron. Here's my yeah. question for you. What modern director would you think could pull off a high-budget silent movie in the modern era today? Yeah, I think the most obvious answer is Wes Anderson. Um, I think he could he could probably nail it um, just with his visual style and whatnot. Um, yeah, I mean, I I don't really want to see a lot of. Si- modern silent films. I think I think there's a difference though cuz I I think if you were styling a silent film now, right? What I would recommend is a movie that is um you know, something like uh You Were Never Really Here, which is almost silent. Um it's very, you know, there's not a lot of dialogue at all in that movie. Um but it you know, it's it's visually stunning. So I wouldn't want someone to make like um, a movie in the style of Charlie Chaplin um, today. You know, I think that would be a little awkward. I don't, I don't think people would, uh, would really cling to that, but, um, but I, I, I do think there's, there's room for quote unquote silent movies or mm. movies that are made without dialogue. Um, and, but I, I think if anybody was to do a movie, you know, a modern throwback to a silent movie. Wes Anderson um, could do it. And obviously, uh, let's not forget that there was the most recent, you know, true silent movie uh, in the style of, of a 20s silent movie is The Artist. Um, and, uh, you know, that won Best Picture in 2011. So, hmm. um, you know, I mean, it, I, I, it's a fine movie. It's, it's, it's all right. Um, but it's it's not like 
I don't think about it all that often, <laughs> personally. But, I, th- I think as, a, as someone who enjoys movies and has now had a small exposure to silent films, I can kind of see some aspects of silent movies that like are missed in today's cinema. And in, and our last mm-hmm. episode about Buster Keaton's films, like Cameron, I thought that was one of the best conversations we've had in a while about yeah. the state of movies today and comp- reflecting them off some of some of like, you know, what older films were doing. I will admit watching old silent movies is very difficult for me. I think it it's very boring, but I value the show not tell feeling and and really when it comes to directors I'm, I've always been a fanboy of what Edgar Wright does because there are transitions in his movies that show and not tell, and it's done in such a frenetic way that it it to me I'm like it's not, there's not a there are not a lot of films that are that fun to visually like experience. Um, not that he has like the most beautiful cinematography, but like there's just something about the editing and the energy with it. Um, and so I, I would love to see a movie that really harnesses that show, not tell energy, like the good stuff about silent movies. Um, and even play off the fact that there's no dialogue. I mean, I think about like a movie like Castaway, right? Um, how there is like, inner, there's, there's dialogue because, um, he's talking to that volleyball, right? Which is great. The movie's awesome. It's super good. But like, you know, couldn't there be an energetic show, not tell kind of like a movie about solitude or being alone, you know? Yeah. You remember, um, a couple, uh, a couple years back, I think it was a Robert Redford movie. Um, he made one about him being on a boat. Um, uh, uh, all is lost. That's what it is. Mm. Um, and I think that was basically a silent movie. I didn't see it, but, um, but I mean, it's just him on a boat, you know, yeah. the whole time. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's kind of the same idea of, of what you're talking about. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I don't know. I, I think it's just an idea to, to consider. And I think that if you're a filmmaker to watch some of these older movies, and I can't wait to talk about my favorite one on this list. Um, there, there's a lot, there's, there's a lot to pull inspiration. Like I, I don't know. I've been I've been kind of fascinated by some ideas around minimalism and how you can make a lot with a little. And there's just so much more like value in that small amount of thing, right? Um I don't know. Like I think that silent movies can be seen as a palette of minimalism and like that that is the sort of thing I'd like to see more of in in modern films and that's kind of why I wanted to ask that question, Cameron. I don't yeah. know, Wes Anderson, I I feel like I haven't seen a lot of his movies at all. So um, I know he made yeah, the one. About- I just think he has that energy to make a movie like um, like a, a Chaplin movie mm. in a lot of ways. So um, yeah, I, and just visual style. I think I think he's he could do it really well. Uh, also, but I I don't think he should. <laughs> also, uh, just I mean, like when you're talking about a Chaplin style movie, I I love some of the things you were talking about last week with. Um, like physical actors and how Tom Cruise is like the new Buster Keaton. I think that's yeah. a, that's like one of the your best takes, Cameron. Um, <laughs> like I don't know. I think that would be maybe next week's hot take about 
who you think is the best physical actor. I mean, we already mm. know you're thinking Tom Cruise, but just, you know, ponder on it and make sure I'll to think dream in, yeah. you know. Take us away, Cameron. Um, yeah, so I'm going to list out all of the movies right at front. Um, and we have, uh, you know, we have eight movies to go through. So I kind of want to do a couple of these in deeper depth and a couple of these um, sort of just as a preface almost. Um, so the first movie that we watched is called uh, Arrival of a Train uh, by the Lumiere brothers, uh, made in 1895. The second one is The Cabbage Fairy by Alice Guy Blasche um, in 1896. The third is The Man with the Rubber Head by George Millier um, in 1901. The fourth is A Trip to the Moon, also by George Millier um, in 1902. Uh, the fifth is A Corner in the Wheat by D.W. Griffith in 1909. Um, the sixth is The Massacre, also by D.W. Griffith in 1912. Um, and then we get into some very interesting territory. So that's actually all, um, the, 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 the last two I would say are bonus round, uh, movies. So the, the, um, seventh one is Unchien Andalou by Louis, uh, Benwell and Salvador Dali in 1929. And then the eighth and final movie that we watched is Meshes of the Afternoon by Maya Darian. Um, in 1943. So well after the silent era has ended, but I think still deserves a place on this list in some ways. Um, and I think we'll talk about why. Uh, so let's, let's start with the first two, because I think those go pretty well together. Um, Arrival of Train and The Cabbage Ferry are very, very early um, moving pictures. And that's what they would have been considered back at the, at the time. Um, obviously film, the idea of film was relatively new, um, even in the photography sense. I mean, there was film cameras in the civil war, um, there, you know, daguerreotypes were, um, were around since like the 1820s. Um, but I think in 18, in the, in the mid 1870s is really when you got, um, silver nitrate film, which is what these would have been filmed on. And so, um, Really, it's only 20 years later or 30 years later or however long that you see the cropping up of these attractions, what would have been basically a carnival ride at the time, maybe at the World's Fair or something like that, where you saw moving pictures um, and they were shot in a very rudimentary way, obviously on a stage in these, uh, well, Arrival of a Train is not, they just plopped a, a, a motion picture camera down as a train was coming and, uh, you know, film the people getting off. So that was, that was a very early example of sort of a documentary style, I guess, but really it was, it was just, it was just a, it was like a tech demo essentially, you know, Isaac, um, it was like showing off what, uh, what f motion picture can, can do. Um, and the cabbage fairy is interesting because this is the first time um, I believe ever, I mean, I, I don't know of any other examples, but this is the first example of storytelling in film. Um, and so in a motion picture, um, and obviously extremely rudimentary, she takes babies out of a, um, out of cabbage, you know, she's the cabbage fairy. She, she plucks the babies out <laughs> of the cabbage. It's kind of ridiculous, um, little movie, but base, you know, but it is, it is storytelling. 
um, at, at, at the very base level. Um, and I wanted to show you these two as like, well, first of all, they're, they're one minute long. So, you know, there's, there's almost no entry fee to watching these two. Um, but I think they're good examples to lay the groundwork of where we're, where we're going in the next, um, you know, 15 ish years. Right. Um, the first, uh, six of these movies on, on this list take place in a span of, you know, under 20 years. Um, and you can see how, um, how, how rudimentary these first ones are versus how advanced some of the other ones become only a few short years later. Um, and that's why I wanted to take a, a pit stop with George Millier, um, who I consider to be a really, really important figure in making, um, in shaping kind of the landscape of how, uh, of how films were, were made. And, I think what you see in all of these examples in these first four is that uh film is is essentially a show you know it's a it's a magic trick in a lot of ways um you get a sense that these are you know to be shown in front of an audience maybe you know there there were these single um you know you look you pay a nickel and you look in um and you watch these these little little shorts um and so you know, th this was this was an attraction, a ride, basically, at a carnival, um, and I I think with the man uh, the man with the rubber head and a trip to the moon, obviously a trip to the moon is much longer um, in 1902, but uh, the man with the rubber head, I think it's pretty obvious that this is like a gag. This is him um, experimenting with how film how overlaying film, how you can deceive the audience and how to make sort of a magic show out of, out of filmmaking. But it's, it's pretty impressive in a lot of ways. And I think, um, I think it's a lot of fun. So why don't we stop at the Millier, um, train stop? Um, tell me what you think of these, uh, these two Millier, uh, shorts that you watched. Yeah. Um, just uh, a couple things about those those two opening one minute films: the train arrival, of the train, and the cabbage fairy. Um, they are like ancient, eighteen ninety five and eighteen ninety six. I mean, also, also as someone who's you know listening to this, you can watch all this stuff on YouTube. That's how we watched all of it. So yeah, um, kind of cool to to see it on YouTube. Like the train one of just a train parking and people getting off. It look, I I wrote down it. It looks like it's shot on paper. Like it's like <laughs> it is just ancient looking. And then the cabbage fairy is just whack. I have no idea what is happening. <laughs> this lady pulling out babies and putting them on the ground. Like it's just so strange. Um, yeah, I don't know if I ever needed to see that. But I got the idea that, like, I've I don't think I've ever seen anything that old. And with the train one, I was thinking about the Great Train Robbery, which I don't know what year that came out, but um, I don't think, I think it was, was 19, uh, 1906 or nineteen oh seven, yeah. something around that that era. So to see something in from the eighteen the eighteen hundreds, nineteen oh three, yeah, right, just like wow. I I don't even like I'm not I. 
not only was I confused, I mean, the tra- people getting off the train, I was like, oh, this is like the first time someone has like used a camera, you know? Like, I mean, obviously not, but there's yeah, just- it's not, it's not the first, but it is one of the first. Yeah. yeah. It, it, I, and the Lumiere brothers were, um, you know, I, a couple different people were competing for like the first motion picture camera right. in a lot of ways. Um, the Lumiere brothers as an example, um, and, um, Thomas Edison, obviously he was really influential. Um, and also cutthroat at, <laughs> um, trying to keep everything motion picture wise in house, which mm-hmm. is why it's actually the reason fun, fun little fact here. It's actually the reason that, uh, people moved to LA and why LA cropped up as the, you know, the heart of the, the motion picture industry, because, um, it was actually in New York. It started in New York with Edison. Mm. Um, and a lot of people, uh, liked his ideas, but didn't like how ruthless he was and how terrible he was. Um, and so they took the patent for the motion picture camera. They moved to LA because it was one very easy to get sunlight all the time. It's instead of New York, which they needed, they actually needed sunlight in order to film all of these movies. Um, and, uh, it was dry and warm and people liked that. So, yeah. Yeah. So just ancient, you can watch them on YouTube. Um, who's the next guy we're talking about? George Millier. 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 That's how you say it. So yeah, the man with the rubber head, um, definitely feels like a magic trick. It's just like, there's a head on a table, which is already a little confusing. And a man is like, you know, using one of those like forge, air pump kind of things and it's like <laughs> yeah. blowing up the head and then it's shrinking and growing and um eventually like it pops that's kind of like the whole the whole gag right um so that's when you're starting to feel like oh this is kind of this feels like a show a little bit like something's going on yeah. with this to then move to a trip to the moon just a year later like what a massive difference in the fact that there's somewhat of a plot about these oh, yeah. people you know, fl- like trying to launch to the moon, right? It's pretty, I mean, it's in the title, right? And they go there, they crash land on it. It feels very like drama-esque where they're like on a stage with all these backdrops, um, some neat like visual paintings or almost paintings it seems like they're stepping inside of. So I don't know if it's like yeah. using cardboard and things like that, but it really conveys like a sense of environment I have to say this movie is very weird and boring at the beginning. There's just a bunch of people yelling at each other in a room. <laughs> but as soon as they jump yeah, into a much. rocket and they launch themselves into like this moon that looks like Michael Jackson's face is really weird. Uh, it just gets it, it. It actually becomes like kind of kind of beautiful. Like you're like whoa. Like a oh, lot yeah. of people worked on making this thing look like a different planet, and it's so cool to see like you know people in 1902's take on the moon with you know, these large sharp mountains and they're not wearing any spacesuits. They're wearing like old clothing and there's, they're yeah. kind of, isn't there like rain at one point or something like that? Um, um yeah, there's like, they, they, they get to a certain point where there's like, there's like foliage and stuff. Yeah. On the moon. Yeah. The, uh, there is, I think it's like, I don't know if it's rain or snow or something, yes, but yes, like, snow. yeah. Um, yeah, there's like a, but there's also like ladies and stuff. It's yeah. it's very strange, very impressionistic, obviously. But um, but I I think you're right in that it's it's 
it's really impressive just the visual landscape of this movie and how different it looks from uh, just a year earlier where the, it's kind of very simple, very, you know, there's just one backdrop and, you know, it's like a little magic trick. Um, and this movie feels like fully fledged in that there's a setting, there's like characters, there's um, there's some... Uh, I don't know. There's, there's like metaphor in this movie. <laughs> it's like very, yeah. it's very strange how, um, only in, I mean, I'm sure he was doing, he was doing a little bit more, but, but it feels like there's, there's something, um, I don't know. There's something special about this one that I think, that I think people still recognize. Yeah. I don't, uh, I don't think day. I really understand what the movie is saying or showing, um, to me, it still seemed like a stage show, mm-hmm. but there yeah. was a little like inkling in the back of my head saying someone could sit here and analyze and say something because there's like, there's like alien things that are jumping around. They're having an interaction with the alien. I think they kill the alien on the throne. Right. And yeah. then leave. I don't, I don't know. It's very, I, it's, it's just very frenetic and I don't know why I don't, I don't really know why they're doing the things they're doing in the movie. Cause it's silent. So it just kind of keeps going. Um, obviously, it's old, but it it was it was interesting how I was watching it, saying like, "What is going on? Like, what are they doing?" When the last movie he just did was like very clearly like this is a show, right? And then this one yeah. clearly is trying to be much more ambitious. Um, I don't have much else to to say about this, Cameron, but I do want to say how a trip to the moon, like the plot I felt you could follow. Whereas the next film from 1909, I had absolutely no idea what was going on. So well, let's, let's not get there yet. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, I think, I think it's interesting. Definitely. You talk about narrative, how you start to see these, these narratives crop up. And I did want to talk a little bit about, um, the great train robbery, which is another example of this only from 1903, where, you you get this sense that there's like a narrative going on. There's characters. It feels very, uh, still very um, flat and locked off. It feels very stage play esque. Um, but but yeah, it does. It, you start to see the the little inklings of narrative happen after the turn of the century, around 1901, 1903. Um, and I just I find that personally very fascinating. How you get this. Um, I don't know. You get the sense that there's, there's innovation happening, like, and reiteration happening, um, in all of these movies. And I, I, I think it's fun to watch, um, the man with a rubber head and a trip to the moon to see just how, how far Millier has been like going in, in just a short year, you know, Mm. um, next we take a stop a little bit later in the decade, uh, at, uh, D.W. Griffith. Now, do you know anything about Griffith as a filmmaker? No, I don't know anything. Okay. Um, yeah, so I wanted to stop here and talk a little bit about him uh, um, for a couple reasons. One, um, he's very well known as sort of the father of the modern um, idea of the feature film. And that takes place in 1914, I believe, with uh, a, a Birth of a Nation, it's called. Um, you've probably heard of that movie, right? Yes, but I don't know why, and I almost feel like I've watched it. Hold on. i got to look this up now. 
you might have watched it. You might not have. Um, it's pretty controversial nowadays, but I would say it is still um, it is still considered the first example of the feature film. Um, Birth of a Nation follows uh, a you know a clan a, a group of clan members um, who are you know in the movie uh, you know righteously. Um, taking down, you know, what they consider a criminal. Um, it's full of uh, very racist stereotypes um, and was actually loud, like uh, criticized in the day as being, a, you know, a racist film. Though the, um, the movie was very influential in... Uh, returning a lot of prominence to the KKK who had kind of been struggling by at that point. Um, so I, I do want to just mention that it's, it's obviously a movie that has a lot of baggage with it, but um, nonetheless, it's, it's an extremely important movie in that it is considered the, the first feature in the, in the way that we still consider features today. Um, but before that uh, we see Griffith as a, um, I, I think Griffith is extremely influential in the way that we tell stories in, um, in, in filmmaking. And I think you can see that with both of these shorts that we watched. Um, I understand, well, one thing, Isaac, um, I, I, obviously this movie, A Corner in the Wheat is very, is a very simple movie. Um, it doesn't have a lot to say in terms of like narrative. Um, I would say it's, it's kind of like political propaganda in a lot of ways. It's actually structured like that. Right. Um, well, just, just off that though. Right. I still didn't understand what the propaganda was because I was so lost on trying to figure out why there were like so many scenes with people like talking in rooms it starts uh, like this is this is what I wrote down for me. This is how the movie was represented. There are farmers who are struggling. Then you see business people who are rich, mm-hmm. and then you see the farmers still struggling. And I, I was like, okay, they're clearly trying to say something about class here, but I'm not sure because I can't understand what any of the people are saying because it's silent. You know, <laughs> like I'm not, yeah, I'm not entirely yeah, yeah. sure. How they're trying to spin people. I think it's against like the rich. I'm, yeah, I think definitely, De- um, it definitely is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I don't know. I just found I found it like very disengaging. Um, sure, very difficult sure. for me to like stay stay and pay attention. And yeah. I was pretty uninterested in this one. So um, yeah, no, I I get that. It's a it's a very boring film. I I agree with you. Um, but it is important, which is why I put it on the on the list um it's important in some ways because this is where you sort of you start to get a little more creative when it comes to what you're showing you know in in a lot of the other movies that we that we see you know you're following maybe like um a character or you're following a scenario you know a trip to the moon you want to see the trip to the moon um but this is really different uh and what you're seeing is sort of um, a scenario played out that's much more ambiguous in a lot of ways and doesn't really have characters, but it definitely has um, 
It's got like a more, it's, it's saying something moral, <laughs> more or less, mm. you know what I mean? And so yeah. it's, it's, uh, you know, it, it starts off with the farmers. Uh, they're, they're obviously, you know, farming They're you know, they're, they're doing their thing. And then it goes on to the, they call him the wheat king. Uh, which I like, I think that's funny, but, um, you know, he's the wheat king, he's, he's rich. Um, and what you kind of find out through, not through the dialogue, cause there is none, but what you find out through the signs in the background of the shop is that he raises the price of wheat. Um, and that causes sort of this chain reaction of, you know, he's getting richer and fatter and, you know, he's, he's doing great. Uh, and having dinner parties and everything, and he's so happy about his decision to make, uh, you know, wheat um, more expensive, I guess. I, and then, and um, everybody else can't buy bread, and you know, everybody's miserable. But he's he's living so fat off the land. And at one point, there's a there's an amazing uh, cutout where it's it's like a telegraph where it uh, it's like you own 100 percent of the market of the world. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's, it's just, it's like really ridiculous and over the top, but why I put it in here and why I think it's uh, interesting is that this is like, this is like moral storytelling in a way. Mm. Um, and that I think is, is kind of what Griffith brings to the table. Um, you know, we saw in the great train robbery, there's, there's this, there's this element of, you know, getting the, uh, you know, it's like an adventure movie, you know, there's not really anything deeper going on. It's just watching the train robbery in a lot of ways. Um, but with Griffith and with a lot of his short films, what you get is this sense of right and wrong and how there's a little bit more, ex there's, it just feels more extensive in its, um, and it's like content, I guess. Um, and I think we'll talk about it more, uh, with the next film, but I, I think this one is obviously very cartoonish and very propagandistic, um, way to consider this, this topic, obviously, but it is considering this topic, which I think is kind of important and is notable. Um, with our next movie, The Massacre, which is one of my favorites on this list, I think it's really excellent, um, the Massacre is a really complicated movie in a lot of ways. Not just from, from like, there's a lot of extras, there's a lot of characters, um, but there's also a lot, I feel like there's a lot going on in this film. Well, first of all, if, uh, tell me what you thought about this movie, because um, I'm curious what you would what you would take out of it. Yeah, The Massacre is kind of like in that middling range for me on, on this list but I did want to say that it felt like the first movie that had a plot that I could follow like quite clearly mm -hmm. um, yeah now the beginning again like some of these silent movies the beginning of the film is not like there for me like I just I don't yeah. know it's hard to dis figure out what they're going to establish I mean, I know the title's the massacre, so I'm like, when that that when's that going to happen? Yeah. You know? Well, what what I find interesting, not to cut you off, but what I find interesting about the beginning, obviously, it's pretty boring because um, they're kind of just like talking around, walking around. You know, yeah. there's nothing really going on. Yeah. But um, what it 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 is 
a foreshadowing moment and it comes back later on in the movie. And I find that really fascinating that there's, there's several elements that are established in the beginning um, of the movie that are sort of, you know, his, the, the, the scouts love for the girl, um, the, you know, the close up shot of the baby, um, you know, it's establishing these motifs that it's going to build upon through the story and come back to later, like a narrative, like a, like a novel. Um, and it really, for me is one of the first, the, the, one of the early examples of this type of filmmaking that we still see to this day, right? We see this structure of setting things up in the beginning, having this sort of baseline, getting you introduced to the characters, and setting up some some motifs, some some themes, and then you know throughout the the plot of the movie, that's that's where you get um, that's where you get the action, that's where you you know you bought the ticket so that you could see the massacre and whatever else you know, and then there's there's a little moment in the end that kind of turns it around and. And makes it full circle, um, brings home the the ideas that were established in the beginning, um, and this is like this is like a, a little bit masterful level filmmaking, in my mind. Um, he 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 truly is a pioneer in this way, uh, because before that, obviously, as you saw, um, that's not really how films were made, and that's not really how the language of cinema was at the time. He's pioneering a a new language that we still use. Um, So anyways, keep going. I I cut you off. No, no, no. It's okay. I, um, with about the baby close up, I was like, that's the oldest baby I've ever seen. Cause it's like, I don't know. It's just an old (laughs) baby. And it's the first, it's the first close up that you've seen in this, this whole list, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, So it was just noticeable. I was like, that's a, that's a baby. You know, that's an old baby. (laughs) Um, but (laughs) I, uh, yeah, the, the beginning, I wasn't sure there's a girl who's like, is she, is she married? Is she? No, she's like, you know, she's a young, uh, woman. She's being courted by these two guys. One of them is the scout who's like trying to take her way to the country. Right. The other one is like established there, you know? Got it. Um, So yeah, the scout is like sort of the, the dude, the love interest, but they, it, it establishes that they know each other, they run into each other, they kind of paired up, and then they go, they embark on this journey that, uh, you know, I don't know, the wagon trail, they're eventually going to go settle down somewhere, um, and they have to cross dangerous territory, and there's supposed to be some military aid in it, or it's around a battle zone um, with, I guess, like another faction, Native Americans or something, you know, kind of yeah. frontier men versus Indian kind of thing going on. Um, so the scout like goes up ahead and then there's this massive like battle that breaks out and you're worried about, you know, the, the woman and her baby, uh, well, well the first battle. before, we, before we get to that one, cause that's sort of the ending battle. Um, but it establishes that there's, they like surprise attack this Indian village, you know, um, which is another layer of complexity on this movie where, um, you, you know, obviously, you know, these Indians are the, are the bad guys in the end. Um, and there's this sense of, um, you know, that they, they massacre this, you know, uh, a, a bunch of people and whatnot. Um, but 
Griffith is pointing to the fact that there's like this cycle that they they kind of are doing it as like a revenge for right. this sneak attack that is terrible that leaves you know many of them dead and so there's this um there's this shot of you know a woman with a baby um you know who's dead and 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 so it's like it's there's there's a little bit of moral complexity in, into this movie as well um which I I find very very interesting um and also i noticed watching it this time that there was a lot of uniqueness in the way that things were shot um like you could imagine this movie being like very flat um you know you kind of just see people shooting at each other and whatnot but um he uses depth a lot in in his films um, you know, we talked about the close-up. We talked. Uh, the, there's another shot where sort of you're you're viewing the battle from like a a bird's eye view almost, or like a hillside view. Mm. And then you know, a group of Indians come right in front, um, and you know, are are like now they're the center of the frame. Um, right. Which is again another another really interesting example of him setting the language of film that we recognize today. Um, and then, yeah, as you mentioned, you know, then there's kind of this, this break and the Indians start following the, the wagon trail, um, and, and attack them. Yeah. I mean, but the wagon trail isn't tied to the military necessarily, right? No, the, the military was like, they were the ones, you know, carrying out the raid originally. Right. Um, but in order to get revenge, they, the Indians attacked the wagon trail. Right, right. So yeah, they're passing through. Cameron is right. They they do show a different combat scene earlier. So you're kind of, it's like the tensions are there, and then I think there's some text saying like, oh, they're passing through dangerous territory that need like a military aid or something. Or the scout yeah. goes off to say, I'm gonna go get the military to help us pass this area before they do, and then they get attacked. And there's a large battle, um, a ton of people on camera, which I think is probably. Um, it just, it just feels different than the other films we've watched. And it, when I say a ton of people, it's not like, I mean, cause there's a lot of people on a trip to the moon, right? There's a lot of people on stage, but yeah. this is like, they're covering the side of a hill, you know, like there's a yeah, lot, it's a of, lot people. of people. Yeah. A lot um, of horses. It's like, it's a real Western, you know? Yeah. And you know, it gets pretty violent. People like trying to make a last stand characters you've seen from earlier in the film, having shootouts, um, and you know they 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 lose too right and then there's like a reveal at the end that amongst the piles of bodies the <laughs> the mother and baby survived and the scout comes back with the military and stuff so like a very cool closing of the loop sort of thing still a violent massacre but like you're like oh at least the baby didn't get it you know like it's, <laughs> it it kind of comes together at the end right um yeah I don't. I really didn't have any strong emotions towards Griffith's films. Um, I, as I was looking at *Birth of the Nation*, I have not seen that movie, um, but I, I think the reason I know it is because of the references around um, the racist content. I think it's mentioned a yeah. lot on the internet, right? Um, yeah. So, yeah, it, it's. I think watching a corner uh, in wheat versus the massacre like the massacre is like miles better i think it's a much yeah, like it seems like a a huge jump in in the fact that it it you're right it totally has like a structure of an of an actual movie 
like even even today's movies, like today's movies just have more, you know, color, sound, dialogue, but it's still you can see the early outline in, in this. So I don't know. Yeah. I don't have anything else to say about it, Cameron. I was just was like, oh, you know, I can follow this, right? And there's a story that closes too. The other thing yeah. about silent movies is that the, they never when they end, it's very abrupt, whereas this movie feels like it it has a smooth landing compared to mm-hmm. the the last ones before. So Yeah, it's very conclusive, it feels right. like. Um yeah, and and before we move on to the more experimental silent films that we watched uh later on, I do want to briefly mention there's a couple of people that we are not gonna be able to to watch. Um unfortunately, because they make longer movies. Because after after this point, after 1914, um, that's when you start to get the full feature movies. Um, so, you you know, it stops being short films like this, you know, one, two real short films, starts being five real, six real, seven real movies that are um, much longer. And uh, I'll just clarify, reels are reels of film that they would shoot on. Um, and obviously there's a set amount of time depending on, on what, you know, what reel of film you're shooting on. But basically it, you know, it amounted one reel amounted to be like, um, 10, 11 minutes, uh, essentially. So, um, you know, so there start to be much, much longer movies, um, after a birth of a nation after 1914, and so some of the people who we're not going to touch on so much, um, w- after this, we get the German expressionists, which we actually saw a little bit of with Metropolis. Um, a, it's a bit of expressionism, although usually it's more associated with things like horror, uh, with like Nosferatu and, and those kinds of movies. You probably have heard of Nosferatu, right? I've seen um, it. Yeah. You've seen it? Oh, yeah. cool. So, okay. So you get the idea of expressionism. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then uh, there's also the uh, Soviet montage uh, directors. So Sergei Eisenstein, um, who we also watched um, with uh, uh, Battleship Potemkin. Is um, that even public, Cameron? I don't even know if that's a public episode. I think that's so old. That's from not. our old podcast. So. It's not, which is, an, oh, we can talk about it a little bit too. Um, yeah. Do you want to talk about it, I, I guess, a little bit? Well, um, I, I mean, I was thinking about Battleship Potemka because of the massacre, right? Yeah. And, and I was like, oh, I've seen a silent movie with a massacre. I will say Battleship Potemka has a brutal massacre scene. It's, it's awesome. pretty awesome. It's yeah, pretty it, awesome. Yeah. It is, it is, uh, it feels pretty iconic. And some of the context you gave around that with its political, like it's a political, it's funded by the, the communist party, right back in. Oh yeah. Yeah. It was, I mean, all of, all of the films from the Soviet era were made by the party were, you know, funded by the party. So yeah. But the director endorsed in some way. Wasn't the director like forced to do certain things. And then he, he almost interspliced some of his own ideas in it, like hidden. Right. Yeah. Um, not so hidden. I mean, they, he definitely made Soviet propaganda movies and Battleship Potemkin was like, was kind of a, a hoorah type movie, you know, it was very like, yeah. um, it's, it's a, it's a movie that's, that's very much like, yay, you know, the revolution, whatever. Um, and it's obviously sort of, um, romanticizing a certain time period and a certain right. era, but, um, his part of his idea 
of um of filmmaking and he was very influential for this was the idea of montage um and there's another director who we might touch on next week i'm not sure i haven't decided yet um a guy named uh ziga vertov who um directed a movie called man with a movie camera i think we might watch it next week but i i'm mm. kind of considering i'm going back and forth um on it but uh ziga vertov he a- along with eisenstein both made this idea of showing things uh in sequence that become different because of their sequence right so you you show the picture of it's a famous Alfred Hitchcock example where he he talks about you show a picture of a of a man uh, on the beach and then you show a picture of you know a woman in a bikini and he becomes a, a dirty old uh, pervert. Uh, but if you show a picture of a man on a beach and then he and then you show him uh, you know looking at a at a child he he just becomes a nice old man you know and there's there's context based on what you show in mm. which order. And so that was really ins- that was influenced by both Eisenstein and uh, Ziga Vertov. And you know, in these movies that we've seen up to this point, you haven't seen a lot of that, right? right. The cutting is is extremely for narrative, right? It's extremely, uh, it's it's like, um, it's it's economical. You know, cutting is is like you use it to get to another place. Yeah. You use it as a scene change, as a setting. Um, but Eisenstein and uh, and Vertov, their their influence was to make cutting part of the language, part mm. of the idea of of how you interpret these images. Um, and I think I think you know maybe hopefully we'll talk about it next week i'm not sure i haven't decided but um i think we'll see a little bit more of that idea and and that's something that we intuitively understand um nowadays you know we we get the idea of montage um so uh in these next two movies that are extremely i would say montage heavy um that are very inspired by those ideas of vertov and um and uh eisenstein um so unchen andalu is a insane movie by uh louis benuel and salvador dali if you know anything about salvador dali you can kind of understand (laughs) that this movie is is very insane um uh do you know much about dali no um, okay, well, I, I recommend uh, looking up some of his art. You've probably seen some of it. Uh, there's a really famous example of like clocks um, in, you know, like, I don't know, it's just like clocks in space and whatnot. Oh, I know what that, fa- I love that. F- that That is a weird, yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, what an so, interesting painting though. Uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. and And he was a very... He's a very strange guy, <laughs> obviously. Um, but this is a this is a very. I think this is a fun movie. Uh, personally, it's very weird. Um, has a lot going on. Doesn't really make a lot of sense. But it is it is extremely dreamlike, uh, which I find pretty, um, 
pretty engaging, I guess, just me personally. I like the the really weird element of it. Um, and you kind of never know what you're going to expect with it, you know? Um, what did you think about uh, Unchien Andalou? Well, I'm just kind of mesmerized by Dolly's paintings. I'm looking at these on Google. These are just... These are I think horrible. mesmerized is the right word yeah. for, <laughs> for him and for this film. They're, they're, they're like teetering on that line of something is very wrong. You know, <laughs> that's mm-hmm. probably probably like it's, it's a sense of mystery and awe that's drawing you in. And I'm not somebody that looks at art at all. I don't care. I don't really care about that, that sort of thing too much. I don't, I don't consider myself staring at paintings like as, as special or anything like that. But it almost looks like you're staring into a dimension you're not supposed to see, you know? Yeah. And there's something about that energy that draws me in um, as someone I, I, as someone that's creative. Now, I do think a lot about um, Eraserhead and how that movie felt like it hurt me, like <laughs> violated me or something. I really do not like that film. Um there is, there is a, for me, there's like a very fine line where it's almost like, okay, there's something about this that I know is a little whack and, but that there's something about it that almost feels, um, I think, I think the word I'm looking for is like truthful, you know, like how can it be, um, how can it be so moving and like uncomfortable or almost like I don't know why I'm thinking of this word but like ethereal like it's like very like you can't explain it but there's something about it that's coming through that like is like I don't know I just I I'm not sure about this I'm fascinated and and moved back by um I think about like there are and, and I love I love this style of thing in movies when it when it hits right I think the experience watching The Shining for me was like, this is like that perfect line um, where, you know, you're in the scene in the red bathroom and you're like, there is something spiritual about this moment on film. And I hate it and I love it at the same time. I, you can't quite explain it. Um, I don't know. Like, I, you know, we, we talk about this sometimes, but you know, Cameron and I both have faith. And so for, for, you know, we're both Christian. There's something about like something that is like, like in a spiritual realm, like that is hard. I I don't know. Maybe I'm just getting off the rails, but it's like, I think there's something out there. And so when it feels like humans have tapped into that for a brief second, maybe they're on drugs or maybe there (laughs) is something out there, you know, like, I don't know how to describe it. Right. Um, so this movie, let's talk about this one. Um, this movie is crazy. Like it is just yeah, it's weird. crazy. <laughs> um, there are things in this movie that I thought were super funny, uh, like the scene with the guy like foaming at the mouth trying to watch the woman get hit by the car. Like I was like, this is hilarious. <laughs> um, and but then there's like stuff that just had me say, "Whoa!" Like what the heck? Like yeah. um, early on, like they slice an eyeball open or something. It's the most famous part of this movie. Yeah, that sure. that was like 
what am I lo- like? What did I just see? You know? And it's, it's pretty interesting, right? <laughs> the sequence of those shots goes, he's, he's, you know, stropping the, the razor blade. Um, and then kind of out of nowhere, he, he just like has this vision and then you see, you see a, the moon and then you see a woman, he's holding like a woman's eye with the razor blade. He's hold, mm-hmm. holding the eye open. And then, you know, he cuts past and then you see a cloud moving past the moon and it cuts into like this cow's eye. Um, and it's just like, it's like, wow, that's, that's like, I don't know. There's something uh, evocative about that somehow. I don't oh, know what yeah. it is. It just it, like churns your gut in a certain way. I would say um, that this movie, I mean, I wanted to introduce that like kind of, you know, strange element of truth. Or I don't know if it's spirituality. I don't know what it is, right? But sometimes in movies, there's something that exists with this. This movie has small bits of that. I think yeah, I wanted I to try to explain that idea maybe for the next one more. I just wanted to give some context. But I think this movie has moments of it. The eye cut is not a moment for me. The eye cut for me is like, whoa, that is crazy. You know, the scene with him laughing and he's like, look, he's pressing his face up against the window. I I can't describe the plot of this movie because I don't know what's happening, to be honest. There's There's no plot to this movie. There's there's a crazy guy, period. All right. There's a crazy. I think it's like (laughs) about a relationship in some way. I think that's kind of the thrust of things is like there's good and bad things in a relationship. There's like this, these, you know, these moments where you're, you're, I think the ending sequence is probably what the movie is about, where there's, there's this, there's this butterfly feeling when you have this sense of, of joy when you first meet someone and then you just end up being like skeleton dolls in the sand at the end. It just mm. destroys you. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, so. I, I, the symbolism, I don't know. That's an, inter- Cameron, yeah. you're very smart at this stuff, right? <laughs> um, I think like, the beginning is just so wild. And then you begin to see this relational tension between a creepy guy with ants in his hand and a woman who keeps trying to run from him. And there's a very uncomfortable like moment where he's like lividly like a dog, like drooling at the mouth, trying to like, he he clearly is like sexually attracted to her. He's like grabbing her um, breast, but then it like cuts to her being a mannequin, which I thought actually was like, for for me, right? Like I don't I don't necessarily like sexual elements in movies, but for me, I was like, oh, this almost feels like double effective. It's not really showing anything, but it is very grotesque, even though it's like a fake plastic mannequin, right? Um, there's just something about it, right? Um yeah. and then it rep like there's there's I think this is the moment of truth that I wanted to like kind of point out in this movie it's like after he's like kind of like rabid with lust for this woman right there's a scene where suddenly he has to pull like all these ropes right are like behind him and the ropes are attached to these pianos that have like (laughs) dead cows bleeding out in them (laughs) and there's also these weird men in suits tugging on the ropes in the other direction and he's like trying to approach this woman after being like a rabid lustful man and he's he's like trying to get towards her but he's like pulling all this disgusting crazy stuff behind him right and there was a moment when watching that where i was like i don't know what this movie is even trying to say but there's something so weird and so like 
I, I don't know. Like, it's that thing. It's that thing I can't really describe. It's the thing yeah. about the red, the red bathroom scene in The Shining, where it's like you, you feel like you're beginning to go into a different dimension you're not supposed to see. You're looking behind the curtain, right? And this moment is a moment where a creator, a filmmaker, is showing something that does not at all, like, in all reality, I just described to you what it was, but like, it sounds ins- insane, and then you see it on screen, and you're like, I don't know why it's working, but it yeah. is, right? Well, and it, it it taps at something that you probably have felt before. Sure. Or a fe- you know, it, it illustrates visually a feeling that you might have had, I think, is probably what you're what you're describing. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't, I don't think there's, I, there probably isn't words to describe what that is, what that feeling is, which is why it has to be shown by um, a man dragging concrete planks and pianos and dead cows and people, you know? Yes. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I, 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 I get, I understand what you're saying. I think knowing that uh, Salvador Dali's attached to this, I mean, if you're, like Isaac is on drugs. First of all, no, I've drinking coffee. Okay. Second of all, just go look at these guys' paintings. You know, you'll get it right away. I'm not going to sound like a psycho person. You'll see the clocks melting in the desert and think to yourself, I don't know why, but there is something weird about this and I'm not sure what it is. So this movie I think is all over the place. It's meaningless. It's meaningful. I don't know how to, like, I don't know what to think of it. Um, I think its conclusion and your interpretation of its conclusion is very, you know, smart, Cameron. I didn't get anything out of this movie. I just thought it was weird. Um, It is weird, yeah. Really, really what I want to talk about is Meshes of the Afternoon, which is my favorite movie that we watched uh, this this um this week I've, the only I've, problem is it's not that fair because this is a movie made in 1943 oh sure um so it's not really a silent i mean it is it's a silent movie and it's in the style of these older style silent movies which oh is it's so I different it's so it. different um but it is it is much more modern i would say but yeah. i agree with you that it is my favorite on this list um i love this movie and i i wanted to include it because i think it's i think it's something special um now i will say the version that we watched has like a soundtrack that i think is really good but yeah. it's obviously not the original soundtrack or whatever what it was included in this movie because i loved it um, i thought it was great but i i agree it's it's pretty it's pretty cool it's a it's a good it's a good encapsulate uh, encapsulation of uh the feeling of this movie but yeah um this one's one that like i think you you were talking a little bit about how a lot of the early silent movies they've got this kind of boring introduction and it goes into something more or it you know maybe it hooks you later on i think this this movie is a little bit the, the same but on purpose um it has kind of a very traditional start you know you you're following this woman she's got a key you know she goes into her house um and then or i think she drops the key or something i don't know um yeah. and then uh, and then as the movie goes along, it gets more and more w- insane. And that's kind of what I love about this movie is like, there's something, there's something entrancing about it that it starts very mm. ordinary, starts very normal. 
and the further along you go, it, it just, it just becomes, um, amazing and, and insane. Um, yeah, I, I would say it's very, very dreamlike. And I think, yes. Um, on purpose, obviously. Cameron, we've had this discussion before. You say that you don't dream a lot or you don't remember your dreams. Not very often, though. I like have super vivid dreams. Like mm. I, and it's not that they're, I, dude, I had this dream like a few weeks back that it was like on the next level. Like it was like genuinely, I think one of the most artistic experiences I've ever had, but it was horrifying. It was like, I don't know. I don't usually have scary dreams, but it was like really crazy. Um, and I kind of blame you. I think some of it had to do with the fact that we watched, um, parasite and hereditary. It was like some strange mix between <laughs> that. It was like my past mixed with elements of those movies. I was like, mm. Oh great. This is, I was kind of enjoying it to be honest. The dream was yeah. like, wow, this is just wild. Um, but this movie I think totally hits that like dream experience, but it does it in a very structured, I, I don't know if it's structured is right, but it feels like one of the earliest time loop films. Um, and I don't know maybe if that, that was the way I watched it or that's mm -hmm. the way I interpreted it. Cause it's about, it's like a lady goes into, um, this house. There are like, she has like these strange, like little moments where she, you know, sees a knife fall out of bread. You know, she drops her key and she picks it up. Those are like two objects that are like continually existing. And then she falls asleep in a chair and notices a woman outside her window. At least that's how I interpreted it. I'm not sure if that's what happened. And the camera does this strange transition where it like zooms in on um, this figure that, well, I don't know if it's a woman. It's a figure. It's a hooded figure. It's it got turns a mirror around. for a face. <laughs> yeah. It has a mirror for a face, which is awesome i think it's yeah, like it's so cool. amazing looking like it is like <laughs> it it looks awesome yeah yeah and the the well yeah we'll get to it later but I'm, the thing like, that the reveal that happens later is is amazing too just imagine you know a dark rider from lord of the rings right yeah yeah but instead of a dark face it's a mirror and it's not a mirror that like you see reflections in at first it just seems like a bright white like glare coming out of its hood at first you realize it's a mirror later in the movie when it's indoors so there's a hooded figure with like a flashlight for a head basically um outside her window as she falls asleep right and then suddenly she's chasing after that figure that goes around a corner and she's back outside the home only to enter the house kind of had the same experience go up she goes upstairs and then like sees herself sleeping again and she looks out the window and suddenly the hooded figure is there again, right? And then all of a sudden there's a third version of her. Like it's like it begins to stack to the point where there are now multiple versions of her existing in this home. Um, and it kind of like the dream eventually breaks. She wakes up to a man or some sort of, I don't know if it's like a love interest, but he's like carrying a flower. I so. Yeah, I think so. I think it's supposed to be like, you know, oh, you know, now she's awake from this dream. Um, you know, her partner um, has awoken her and whatnot. And then, you know, and then it's sort of supposed to be the reintroduction of normal life, right? Right. Um, yeah. And the, the conclusion is like she follows him upstairs to the bedroom and you're like, oh, this is getting a little kind of crazy 
And, you know, you kind of get that feeling that they're about to, like, you know, get it on with each other. But, like, as he begins to, like, kind of press his hand up against her, it's like suddenly she's laying on the pillow and that knife that was introduced earlier that continued to be throughout her dreams, like, appears next to her and she, like, like throwing knives, the guy, like, <laughs> Call of Duty, and then his face shatters into a mirror. And then you're like, wait a second. Like, he was he the hooded guy? I don't know. And then it, like, ends, right? I don't know if there... Is there anything at the end? I'm not sure. Um, it, I can't remember It gets now. thrown onto a beach. All the glass pieces get, like, thrown onto a beach. And then... Oh, um, right. And then he, he like goes back inside the house and she's like laying there and there's seaweed all over her. Um, and she's dead, I guess. I don't know. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah. The ending but, is very, but there's strange. a moment, there's a moment where his face is in the mirror. And like, yes. that's when you kind of get the sense of like, like that re that reintroduction of like the, the themes. It's, it's a really interesting movie. I think it kind of, I don't know if it means all that much, but I think you're right in that it's, it's about a sequence of dreaming. It's about that sort of state that you're in where it's like, it's like, Oh, it's like more than real, I guess. You know what it's I mean? It's strange. I mean, like if you're a vivid dreamer like myself, it's strange how you feel like you've stood in the same place over and over and over again. And you continue to like go there again, but like, I don't know. It was strange. It, it's it's very it's it's hard to describe. I mean the the dream I was mentioning earlier was like I was back at my grandma's old house, and I kept going into the back room again and again, only to like uncover this strange pile of like retro video game controllers, <laughs> and then like I had this endless conversation with my girlfriend, being like, "We need to sell these. These are valuable," you know. <laughs> And then they were all Mad Cats controllers. And I was like, they're not valuable. They're fake. Um, <laughs> only for that home that I'd spent a lot of time, because my grandma's house, like, to, like, it began to shift when I opened this closet that wasn't there before. And this is where I was like, oh, my gosh, it was kind of like Parasite. There was, like, this woman inside the closet. But it was like, she was, like, half-shaded, like, this creepy lady. And then suddenly we had to host like a concert at this house and the living room had turned into an auditorium. Like my dreams are wild, dude. Like I, so long story short, it's not to tell you about my dream. Although I do want to talk about that dream a lot. I don't know why. Um, that feeling of like going inside the house over and over and over again. I was like, I feel like I just experienced that. And it's elevated by some really unique and I think engaging like camera work. Um, I loved the section where she was like kind of moving up and down the staircase, but it felt like the house was turning. It wasn't like the inception hallway where they spin it and they're fighting through the hallway. Right. It's like they're using the camera to make you feel like she was beginning to stick to the walls or stick to the yeah. ceiling. And I've had dreams about being on top of the ceiling and the whole world being upside down too. So that's like, I was like, whoa, this is like really, it's doing something for me. Going back to that earlier feeling, I swear I don't do mushrooms. Okay. <laughs> like, I'm just saying like, there's something about this movie that I feel like just hits, hits and hits like an idea that feels like you're appearing behind the curtain. Mm -hmm. And I loved it for that. I liked the movie style. I liked 
that I can talk about this movie and an audience in 2022 is probably thinking that sounds cool. You know, like yeah. I, I hope that's what it is hearing, cool. Right. Yeah. Um, and so for that reason alone, even though it is more modern than these old historical shot on paper films, right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, I, it's a great one to close out this, this idea, Cameron. So let's, I mean, we're at an hour 17. I mean, I don't know if you want to say anything else, but what I really like to do is because we watched eight different short films and silent things. Like I want to hear your heart and your thesis around these movies and what we're doing. Right. And get back to the subject. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, I, the, really the exploration of this is the language of cinema, the language of film. And I think it's, it's interesting to see the old, ways of how we told stories and the evolution of how that that came to be what we see today um and all of these all of these movies including the very earliest one that we watch have elements of the of the language of cinema that we use today um but i think through this experiment through you know what i showed you um, we can see the evolution of film. We can see how it has, um, how there were things that were implemented early on in the history of cinema that still crop up today, that still are being used. These ideas of montage, these ideas of, you know, the sort of the narrative arc of a, of a story, um, characters and the way that we introduce characters. You can see all of these things in the very early budding stages at this point. And no, these are not the most engaging, entertaining movies to watch. I understand that. Obviously, that's not what this is for. But um, at the same time, I find it really interesting to go back to some of these and to examine them from the lens of... Um, of understanding how we think about movies now, how we think about movies today. So I hope I've given you some perspective in um, just how very far we've come, first and foremost, and how a lot of these movies um, pioneered things that we're um, still iterating on. So I hope I did that. I, I don't know if I did, but... Um, you know, that was my, that was my plan for today. There was something very interesting about this collection of short films that felt like I was walking through a museum that slowly became something very nightmarish, you know? <laughs> um, and so I, I mean, like it's, it's kind of interesting how, you know, we watch uh, meshes of the afternoon which is, I, I would feel like this amalgamation of experimental filmmaking, storytelling, it's all coming together into something that that is almost hard to describe, right? But what's so cool about watching that in context of these other films is you watch something from 1986 called The Cabbage Fairy, which is just weird. We're 1896, right? not Sorry. 1986. 1896, <laughs> that's what, yeah. Um, the Cabbage Fairy, right? This creepy lady pulling babies out of flowers, right? <laughs> and you're like, oh, it was always weird. It was always weird with film. It was always um, weird, yeah. And 
you know, even a trip to the moon is just absolutely like strange um, to to watch today and to see how yet it's still very much like I, I don't know, like somehow a trip to the moon is still like very human, very like like I could almost see if that movie was never made, it would somehow be made um by someone else at some point, even if it was taken in a modern sense. Um like I don't know, there's there there is this foundation. Um it's it's very much the the beginning of it. So to to kind of almost have it like a charcuterie plate um, for the week <laughs> to to try different things and for it for of it of course to end with prosciutto which is the, the best <laughs> thing on the charcuterie plate, right? Yes, Cameron, I would say mission accomplished for you and your and your your film teaching. And I hope the audience even though has most definitely probably not seen any of these movies um, I hope that they could enjoy our conversation about it too. And I hope that people don't think I'm a crackhead because I don't know. Cameron, do you think I'm a crackhead now? No, no. I think you're, you're hitting on something very true. Um, and, and I think what you're saying about the idea of, of a movie visually telling you something or visually explaining to some, to you something that you intuitively know, but you can't, you can't really, um, express in any other mm. way. Um, I think that's an experience that everybody has had, um, yeah. whether or not it's in a movie or in a story or in their own personal life. Um, I think everybody, everybody, everybody knows what that feels like. And I think a lot of these, especially the last two, um, hit on that, hit on that feeling for sure. I think what's hard about trying to describe that experience is that you, in, well, for me, I feel maybe like guilty or like strangely like unapproachable trying to explain something like that. Or maybe like we, when we rate movies, right? Well, for me, like the hardest thing to relate with, I usually stamp like that for cinephiles. Like you really have to just be going for that, right? Whereas I can see some movies that we've written, and, and maybe this is, a testament to this episode, right? I can see how some movies I've rated in the past for cinephiles could have been that moment that I just talked about for someone else, right? It yeah. could have been one of those experiences where they're like, this is hitting something that I never could have described. I mean, even going back to my my thoughts on Eraserhead, right? Maybe for someone watching that movie, they're like, I don't know why this is tapping into something around our, my first kid. Right, which is dark and terrible, but the fact but it's that true, and that's yes. wh that's why I think it does disturb you so much, is because I think it does hit on something true. Um, sure, uh, and yeah, and that's that's why I love that movie is because um, it's so it's staring into the depths of of human nature that are really there and really exist, um, and it's difficult and uncomfortable to do that. Um, but it does. But I even think about some of the other movies that I don't, like, I just didn't really click with and, and, and maybe how they could have been that, like that little, like 
connection with someone, right? I'm sure that there are people that could watch uh, Meshes of the Afternoon and think, what? Like, I, none of that connected. I yeah. always think about, like, I, and I'm I'm not, I'm trying not to ramble, but I always think about my dad who has a very strong opinion about most things. Um, that's probably a good way of putting it. Um, he watches a movie and it doesn't click with him. He's like, I don't get it. You know, I don't, I don't really understand what the deal with that movie is. Um, but I had this realization when I was growing up that my dad is drawn to sort of that weird, like experience thing in, in, in some, like, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, like he had a few moments with media and entertainment, um, around this concept we're trying to hit on. Right. He played, um, shadows of the Colossus and eco, which are very strange, rough around the edge games. Um, and probably less uh, more eco than shadows of the Colossus. Right. But these games are very lonely, artistic, somber experiences. Not something that I would think my, um, dad would like, but growing up, he was playing them and he would play them a lot. Like he really liked these games. And for me, I was like, oh, most people play games like this. And then as I grew up and played on the playground and talked about these games, no one knew what I was talking about. You know, yeah. I was like, they were like, what do you, what is that game? I play Halo. Have you played Halo? <laughs> I was like, what's Halo? I don't know. I mean, yeah, sure. I'll try it. Right. Um, and so I think if you're listening to our conversation and thinking, man, these guys are a bunch of, a bunch of nerds who like, like to watch these old movies and, and you know, gawk on about how they're so great. I'm just going to challenge you because I've been there. I've been in that seat, I guess. And I'm going to say that there is probably a movie or a TV show or some weird painting that you've seen with melting clocks in the desert that has hit this feeling for you. And you can't explain it. You don't know why you even like it. <laughs> and maybe it takes being one of those nerds that watches old movies to get to that point. Yeah, I don't consider myself at that point to being able to explain what I'm talking about, right? Um, I don't know if I ever will, right? But I think to at least try to quantify or at least look back on history and, you know, I, I'm at least ready to experience that endeavor. That's the why I even do this podcast with you, Cameron, is for that sole purpose of like, well, I'll at least kind of try to understand it, even if I don't, right? Um, so... I guess that's my closing statement for this, for this exploration, this endeavor. Cameron, thank you for putting it together such a such a crazy episode. Hopefully, our audience will enjoy it. Yeah, um, and I would recommend. And I'll maybe we'll post the list of movies um, to watch as well, like the YouTube list. Oh yeah, um, do it. But uh, in the Discord, probably. Um, but yeah, really, it's it's this is. This is more for fun than for study in a lot of ways. I, I wanted you to go into this with that sort of open-minded experience. And I think you you did really well. And I'm glad that you're not scared off from movies for life. Um, <laughs> and, oh, we've watched much more. I, you know. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> I was just, there are like movies that come to mind that I'm like, I was right about that movie. And then there are other <laughs> movies where I was like, I was wrong. I mean, I would, I will say right now that playtime I was wrong about. I will say that right now. Okay. Um, where, whereas like, you know, the piano, absolutely. That is garbage. No, that it's garbage. Absolutely yeah, you're garbage. Right. You're right about that. I'm right about that. <laughs> and, uh, I'm thinking, wait, I'm thinking of ending things. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I think I'm you're right wrong about, about that. 
You're right. That one is absolutely (laughs) stupid. Okay. (laughs) All Um, right. Well, on that note, I think it's a good. We we post every Monday, Cameron. I have to. We we have to make a short announcement for our patrons. I don't think we put out a December episode. We didn't. It was my. It was my fault. It was my fault. Um, it's there. I've just been busy. I got really busy, and so um, I. It's fine to post it. I was gonna post it for free anyways, so it'll come out. And then for January, we got to do something fun and special because it's. Uh, we've been trudging along doing silent movies. So. Re-rele- <laughs> we got to re-release Battleship Potemka. That would be good. That. that would be good. Let's do that. Yeah, that's a great idea. But we should also we should also do. Oh man, that's gonna be. If we if we release that, people are gonna be like, "Why does it sound so weird?" And also, why why does Isaac and Cameron sound way less grumpy at life? <laughs> I don't no, know. I think I, I think we can preface it by saying like this was literally the the pitch for the show. This was like our yeah. single experiment that we did before doing this show. So. We'll have to do um, something. Well, Cameron, we'll have to do something else for January too. And for like with me moving and Cameron, you there are a lot of th- there's a lot of stuff going on with Cameron. So people give him a break, right? If you're gonna come after, I know our our, our community give excessively bullies Cameron all the time. No, um, that's not true. Uh, but they love me. I have my own um, text message chain that says "simping for Cameron," and they're simping for me. Yeah, that that text <laughs> chain is super obnoxious. <laughs> I don't know why I'm in it. Um, okay, well, yeah, we're we're gonna we're gonna end it. We're gonna close we're gonna close this show. But thank you guys for listening this far. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Again, you know where to check it out. We'll post. We'll say it in the middle of the song that's ending the show. But we post every Monday. Thank you guys for the support. We'll see you next time. Cinema Spectator is an ECFS Productions podcast that is fully funded on Patreon.com. Shout out to our producers, Darren O'Neill, for supporting the show and to the rest of you that support us at Patreon.com slash ECFS Productions. If you want to learn more about the benefits you can get, check out our Patreon. The show cannot happen without you great listeners, so we thank you for all your kindness and support. (laughs) 